So, oh, that's loud. Okay. Maybe turn it down a little bit. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. So um, tonight, as I promised, I will talk about the third noble truth, the Buddha. And I'll be using a lot of, of words from different masters, different teachers, just to give different flavors. But this is from the Buddha. What now is the noble truth of the extinction of dukkha? It is the complete fading away and extinction of this craving. It's forsaking and abandonment, liberation and detachment from it. The extinction of greed, the extinction of hate, the extinction of delusion, this indeed is called nibbana. And for a disciple thus freed, in whose heart dwells peace, there's nothing to be added to what has been done, nothing more remains to do. Just as a rock of one solid mass remains unshaken by the wind, even so neither forms nor sounds nor odors nor tastes nor contacts of any kind neither the desired nor the undesired, can cause such a one to waver. One is steadfast in heart. And one who has considered all the contrasts of this earth and is no more disturbed by anything in the world, the peaceful one, freed from rage, from sorrow, and from longing, has passed beyond birth and decay. What I love personally about that definition, description, is that it's very um, experiential, accessible to by the wise, <laughs> moment to moment that includes us. Because say, if you say he's describing a state of heart and mind freed from craving, that's what he's calling freedom from confusion from suffering, the cessation of craving. And I really like that because that's, that's the angle from which I want to speak about it tonight. Rather than trying to describe some state or something, you know, we can really start looking for something. It's basically saying what we've said all along, turn around, look at your heart, look at your mind, see what's going on. See if this is true. Because the sense of freedom from craving, from hatred, from delusion, are minds that tend to think ahead along the end of a path only thinks, well, that's down the road at some other lifetime, never going to happen to me, and we just throw it into some idea. But what's so cool about the nature of uh, what we call mind, heart, in our moment-to-moment -moment experience, just what we're experiencing here. He's not talking about a state at all, a state other than this moment of being the heart, mind, the consciousness, the awareness, being free from these torments. I'm going to use torments or calatias rather than saying greed, hatred, delusion every time. Okay, but that's what I mean by torments, calatias. 
So it's not like some distant steady state. What we're calling mind is, as Andy Alinsky describes it, it's not a steady state. The mind is not a self-existing steady subject that takes objects as content. And when we say the mind, again in English, it sounds like one steady thing, doesn't it? Just like when we say the body, we think of a solid, unchanging thing, and the mind too. But the mind is, this is Andy again, it's not a subject, it's uh, activity. It's the process, the moment-to-moment arising and passing process of cognizing the flow of events. And it's just as the events, the objects that are arising, the six sense doors are arising in every moment, the, the cognizing function, which is the function we call mind, is also arising and passing in every mind moment, of which there's, you know, 10 million in the blink of an eye. So when we talk about a moment of mind, of heart, free from greed, hatred, delusion, this is what makes it accessible to us. Because the so-called mind isn't some solid thing, we've got to somehow transform and be other than it is now. We can actually use our practice to look in the quality of the heart-mind in this moment. Does that sound familiar? What we've been talking about the whole time. Because it's changing all the time. And so that means not the final never arising the torments again, we're not saying that, but in any moment, a kind of like taste of this freedom is available to us, accessible to us. There are many moments in the day, believe it or not, when there's not greed, hatred, or delusion, not craving in the mind, in the awareness. We often don't notice it. So Nibbana is directly visible. This is from the Buddha. Once a Brahmin approached the Blessed One and asked him, you say, Nibbana directly visible, immediate, inviting one to come and see. He's not saying down the road, ten lifetimes for now. Immediate, inviting one to come and see. What does this mean? So he says, the Buddha, when a person is impassioned with lust, depraved through hatred, bewildered through delusion, overwhelmed and infatuated by delusion. Then she, he, plans for her own harm, the harm of others, the harm of both, and experiences in her mind suffering and grief. But when lust, hatred, and delusion have been abandoned, he neither plans for his own harm or the harm of others or the harm of both. She, he, does not experience in her mind suffering and grief. In this way, Brahman, Nibbana is directly visible, immediate, inviting one to come and see, worthy of application to be personally experienced by the wise. And so I would really invite us to listen to what the Buddha is saying, not get caught up in concepts, but just take it in, hmm, directly visible, immediate. Immediate means only right immediately here, nowhere else. Well, there actually isn't anywhere else, but immediately here. Not something that we have to get, 
It's not something at all. But that if we uh, really are interested and look and begin to see worthy of application, exploring what's the quality in heart and mind in a moment when there's wakefulness and it's free from craving. Just start to explore and see what does this mean? What is this experience? Is that something you even know? And I want to say it is, but we overlook it so often. This is from Ajahn Buddha Dasa, who know we've spoken of often, the Thai um, forest monk meditation master, and he was quite a scholar. He died in uh, the 1990s. <clears throat> this is uh, from a long talk he gave to Thai people called Nibbana for Everyone. And he was specifically, he was a bit of a radical, I think, as we've said, radical within a very, a very constrained context of Thai Theravada Buddhism. But still, in that place, he was a radical. And he's speaking to Thai people who've come to, I don't want to go into the whole story, but basically saying that lay Thai people at this time had also come to think Nibbana is just means when an R, a completely enlightened person dies, that's Nibbana. And Nibbana has no relevance to any of us or to lay people or to anybody these days. That's something they talked about in the old days. So that's why he's talking about Nibbana for everyone. So I'm not going to read the whole thing, lucky you. Um, just a few things I picked out. He says, <clears throat> Nibbana is a natural condition. It is the cool state of mind without any kalatia, without any torments. Nibbana is cool. Now he's punning here because from what I understand in Thai, they use the word Nibbana to mean actually to cool something off, like the rice is nibbana for example. So you know, he's, he's punning, but he's also making a good point. So, Nibbana is natural condition, the cool state of mind, of heart, when it's free from kalatia. Buddha termed this the cessation of suffering, which means the extinction of the heat from the kalatia, from the defilements. And just as you, you know, as you're hearing this, if it makes just don't think about it so much, but take it in when you're like impassioned with lust, bewildered by confusion. Doesn't it feel like burning, burning in the mind? Anger, that one's even more obvious. So he goes on, skipping, he says, when we look further, we will see that the, the defilements also, greed, hatred, delusion, are also conditioned things, compounded things, coming together from conditions, going apart when those conditions cease, or things that have birth and death. And so this shows that the kalashas occur, and when the conditions that cause them are not present, they simply become extinct. They just become extinct. And although the extinction is temporary, in other words, the coolness takes place temporarily, the phenomenon has the real sense of nibbana, even though it's not the lasting one. I mean, can you relate? Because this makes sense. So hence, temporary nibbana does exist. Well, this is the, the, the time master. For those who unavoidably have some impurities that still arise in their minds. <laughs> but he goes on to say, anyone can see that if these torments were with us all day and all night, 
every second without ceasing, who could ever stand them? You take that in now. You may be thinking, if you have a cynical mind, they are with me all day and all night, every second without ceasing. (laughs) But I think his point is a good one. It's not the case. He says, under such condition, living beings must either die or really go crazy. So let us consider well the fact that one survives because there are periods that the fires of Kalatia, of defilement, are not burning. And as a matter of fact, we can say that these periods last longer than when the fires are burning. We survive because of the nourishment from this kind of nibbana. This nourishing condition is thus normal to what may be called life, mind, heart. So why don't we know or recognize or feel thankful for this type of nibbana? That's the million dollar question. Why don't we even recognize, you know? So that's one reason I like to talk about this third truth from this angle, because I know in my own uh, life of life practice, whatever, uh, in all the reading and talking about the sense of freedom and nature of mind and nibbana, the habit of my mind, which is craving, of looking for the missing thing that's going to bring me to completion, right? Not noticing, not turning around and noticing that what's occurring in my mind at that moment is craving, even though the object is some idea of nibbana or freedom. And then suffering so much from trying to understand what that could mean. Does anybody relate to that? And so, no, no, you have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> Lucky you. Uh, a lot of suffering going on there. Turn around and go, oh, this is craving. And then there's the voice of Mara. It may be craving, but you've got to really crave to figure out Nibbana. You can't just go, this is craving, and walk away. What are you, just, you can't do that. So I want to come from this angle. And I'm reading from a lot of people, so you know, it's not just me you know, throwing in the towel of defeat and saying the best we can do is notice craving in our mind. (laughs) This is really starting to see when it's not present is the intimation of freedom. So can we even let it in? Can we notice what Ajahn Buddha Dasa called temporary nibbana? Why don't we? What are we talking about? And again, the, the most simple ways, just the simple moments of what I would call now in my current language, purity of consciousness, when the awareness is there, not distorted by greed, hatred, delusion. We've talked about this a lot, right? Right mindfulness. But we still tend to kind of focus on the object of the mindfulness. So it's like starting to um, shift the field of attention so that we can actually begin to notice what is occurring that we tend to overlook. So I'm sure many of you have heard this this really well-read, famous sutta of the Buddhas from the Anguttara Nikaya. Luminous is this mind, or heart, brightly shining, but it is distorted, it is colored by the attachments that visit it, This unlearned people do not really understand 
And so they do not cultivate the mind, the heart. Luminous is this mind, this heart, brightly shining, and it is free of the attachments that visit it. This the noble follower of the way does really understand, and so for them there is cultivation of the mind. And what was for me kind of a an aha moment in my own mind is realizing this isn't this these two luminous is the mind, but the but the brightness, the na- natural luminosity of mind is covered by attachments, and then we don't see that, and then the mind is brightly shining when it's free of attachments. The aha moment was when I got it. That's not necessarily it has to be sequential like that. Even when the luminous quality, the brightness, the radiance of heart and mind is not recognized because of the attachments, the kalatia, that radiance is completely undisturbed. So both can be going on. And just the simple way I think about it in, in my own experience is our habit, you know, the kalatias it's like they make a lot of noise when they're present, right? And greed, hatred, confusion's going on, and all the papancha, it kicks up, and all the stories, and all the me, right? We really notice that stuff. Maybe we're aware of it, maybe we're not, but our attention really gets sucked in. Shining kind of mind, noticing that, huh? You know, the, 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 the violence, they just, they just make so much noise that we just are in the habit of getting completely entranced and involved and reactive to whatever particular object it is that's, that's occurring, any of the six sense doors. That's kind of where our mind, our attention tends to bend in that direction. Whether it's pleasant, unpleasant or not, what do I think about this? What am I seeing? What am I hearing? It's kind of how we, how we talk about our lives. And even you know, like when you come into an interview and I'll say what's happening. Really, that's the wrong question. Big picture, it doesn't matter what's happening. You saw this, you heard that, you felt this, you thought that, another thoughts, another sight, another sound. That's all that's going on all day long. And it's like, this one or that one, what difference does it make? But, but that's how we talk, and we miss the luminous quality of the heart-mind when it's not uh, distorted by the attachments. We forget to even look in that direction. So it's not like that. I'm not saying we should see some incredible, brilliant, like nuclear sun. I'm not talking, I'm just talking a very simple quality of the mind, the heart, in those moments when we're not um, obsessed, distracted, blinded, caught up, seduced, whatever word you want to use, by whatever particular sense object, including mental ones, is occurring. So it's sort of like we learn to shift the direction of interest or expand the direction of interest. So we're not just staying, you know, relating and uh, reacting to every single object that comes. Remember one time I was sitting with Sera Upandita, very tough teacher, very demanding, very great master. And it's the practice where you're noting every moment whatever's arising. So I, I can't remember what I was reporting in the interview, but clearly I had some kind of complaining tone in my voice. I mean, one wouldn't dare really complain, but clearly I was like dissatisfied with what was occurring. And he just says to me, so what do you want? Different objects to note? 
<laughs> I was like, that was so right on. That's exactly it. Yeah, I want better ones, you know? <laughs> That's how we're spending our life, wanting better ones to note. And we just keep on spinning, spinning, spinning. And we miss this, uh, you know, this, uh, the luminous quality of the heart, the mind, when it's free from attachments, because we don't even think to notice that. So very simple when you hear these, these next days here. Now, I don't mean turn around and be looking for some experience, not that. But what we're cultivating here, right, is the quality of awareness, consciousness knowing what's happening, and then the awareness knowing what we're knowing. And as we've said like 10 million times, wise attitude, right, mindfulness, is that just, that just that complete presence without adding anything extra without wanting, without aversion, without the overlay of concept or me. And this is what Ajahn Buddha Das is talking about, moments of coolness. See, just start to notice them. It's often little moments when anything could be happening. It's not a fantastic sitting necessarily at all. It can be a time when you're just walking up to the dorm and there's just no sense of any problem. You're just quite present. We even then tend to attribute it, everything's conditions, but we often attribute it to the particular object. Oh, but that just then, the bud on that bush was so lovely, and I just felt this moment of peace, appreciating the bud and the softness of the breeze and the sun. And so again, we're throwing all the peace outward to the conditions, and not noticing that what was going on is just a moment of pure simplicity of presence. Kind of like in Zen, they just call it the isness, just this. Just this could be like a moment I described. It could be taking a step and your toe hurts. It could be coughing. It could be drinking tea. It could be having what you call a great sitting or having what you would call a horrible sitting or just before you fall asleep at night. Many, many of these moments of just the simplicity of presence. Notice that. Yeah, craving will come in, or aversion will come in, or something else will happen, or some yogi walks by and ruins the moment for you, you know. (laughs) But if you keep the awareness going, you can just notice the change. And if you can notice what made the change, did that yogi walking by really make the change? What's the difference in the mind? So we notice the difference when the heat from the defilement is again arising. And if you can manage not to take it personally, but just be exploring this difference, this is beginning to recognize. This is coolness of this intimation of freedom from suffering. Immediate, inviting one to come see for oneself. We look too hard for the big, you know, the big blast, blow it all off and we never have to deal with this stuff again. Sorry. But more and more and more moments becomes more trustworthy. And when we get sucked back into the reactivity, that's much more noticeable. Oh, wow, this is a defilance. This is the suffering nature again. But we start to know more and more and more that this coolness of you know, mini nibbana, whatever you want to call it, this coolness, this heading in the direction of the peace of mind and heart that's not disturbed by conditions. We start to get a sense of it, an intimation of it. 
beginning to trust that it's immediately accessible here and now. You don't need to be different. I mean, there's nothing different every moment you're different, but it's not something to gain. Starting to really explore this. That sense of, I don't know, we use the word purity. One friend described at once these moments of just the simplicity of kind of pure awareness, pure meaning not distorted by Kalatia. She described it as feeling squeaky clean, you know? Like when you're like cleaning a, 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 a window and you can't see anything and it just squeaks with cleanliness. I, I somehow like that. Just squeaky clean, nothing in the way. So we can start to explore this, recognize this, see why it is that we don't. Sony Rinpoche said, again, this is why we don't. At the present moment, our mind faces away from itself. Our attention bends towards whatever we experience, sight, sound, smell, taste, or texture. The mind leans towards it. You get a sense of that sometimes? I was talking and craving just at the end of my talk last week. Just that subtle movement of mind to kind of fixate on an object can be craving. The attention, Sony again, the attention is also caught up by thoughts about the past, about the future, about the present, when in fact everything takes place in the present. This is from Huang Po, Chinese Chan master. I'm just using different words to say the same thing. This pure mind, this pure heart, shines forever with the radiance of its own perfection. But most people are not aware of it. And we think the mind is just the faculty that sees, hears, feels, and knows. Just the kind of functioning. We notice the functioning, not the purity of the aware mind itself. Blinded by their own sight, hearing, feeling, thinking, they don't perceive the radiance of the source. And again, uh, not to make this into some big source thing to look for, but just more noticing from time to time, just with interest, when whatever's arising, that, that way that the attention does just tend to bend towards it. And we don't notice the awareness that's noticing. That's what we've talked a lot about, just noticing the knowing. That's all. We're talking about radiance, purity. It's not like some, like I said, not some huge nuclear sun. It's the, just this purity of the capacity for knowing, arising out of nothing, going to nothing, nothing you can hold to, no thing, but this radiant source. And this is the, the poignancy, really, of craving of aversion, of reacting to experience, is that it keeps us so busy and engaged with experience that we don't notice where it's arising from. And even um, our mindfulness practice, I mean, whatever we do, however we practice, you've noticed this, the habits of our mind show up in how we practice. Have you seen that? I mean, the way we act in big situations in life, after a while, you realize that's coming up exactly in how you're relating to feeling the breath. Have you ever seen that? It's really amazing, you know, something so simple. It's just notice what's occurring. And all the major, you know, traumatic habits of our life show up. I 
I forget why I was saying that. <laughs> I was leading up to some great point. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. So, <laughs> slowly it comes back. So, even in the choiceless awareness particular technique of mindfulness practice where we're just noticing whatever's arising by itself. So we talk about that because you really begin to get a bit more of a sense, a little less sense of me doing and more just receiving, stuff's occurring, stuff's occurring. And there's times when it's really the awareness is what's obvious and not so much the object. But, but more even this with objects, it can be meeting, 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 seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, noting, 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 noting. And that's mindfulness. But that can, it can be quite balanced mindfulness, samasati, but it can, and I'm speaking totally from personal experience, have just this subtle sense of me doing, which is craving. Any sense of me is a craving, me doing. And so it seems incredibly mindful. Every moment is mindful, but the sense of me doing, me doing, is just so strong by the end of the day, by the end of the retreat. Do you, do you get a sense of what I mean? You go, what? don't quite get what's going on here. So then I'm going to try and not do. I'm going to just receive, you know. Things are coming, things are coming, but it's not very clear. It's not very clear. I should be better. And all the while we're kind of focusing on technique and focusing on object. That's all skillful means. I'm not saying we can throw that stuff out. But not forget to keep noticing the awareness that's doing that, the mind that's turning towards that. It's not a thing, but just that activity. Not quite so caught up in the objects. Analayo, Bhikkhu Analayo, that um, very brilliant German Theravada monk translator. He said, this is his theory. He says one of the reasons he thinks Western meditators may progress more slowly than their Eastern counterparts. Now, I don't know if that's true, but he did a lot of his uh, practice in Sri Lanka, so this is his opinion. I'm not necessarily endorsing that, but that's what he says. But this is the point. Is our tendency to become absorbed in the content of awareness rather than continuing to attend to the process of awareness? And that's really exactly the point I'm making. When you come in an interview and I say, what's happening? I'm making that same mistake. I'm going into the content of awareness. But really what we want to attend to is the process of awareness over and over and over. And that gets more and more interesting, more and more obvious. You don't have to think about it. It just becomes more obvious. And then you'll notice when the process of awareness is really distorted by Kalesha. A lot of people have, have been describing now, you know, in the meetings how all of a sudden they realized there must be a version in the mind because they were having these really, you know, negative thoughts about everything they saw and people who walked by. And it's great because maybe a year ago we wouldn't have even noticed that it was the process of awareness that was getting distorted. We would have just really thought, you know, there's something wrong with everybody and everything and the sun and the bushes and, you know, or something really wrong with me. Instead of saying, this is a momentary arising of aversion that's distorting perception in the awareness. And what comes together can go apart. 
And the process of awareness, if we get interested then in the process of awareness, rather than doing battle with the aversion, we're back in a moment of awareness is like this. Aversion is like this. There can be that squeaky clean process of awareness, even with aversion or wanting as the object, when it's not all mixed up with the awareness, when we can see it. This is from another Thai forest monster, Ajahn Tate. The mind, and again, everything, the mind, we keep, even though it's just this changing process that awareness comes from, this, just saying the mind, my mind goes back to solidity just because of how we're used to thinking. So just to remind you, the mind is the process of knowing. So he's saying, the mind and the defilements, the kalatia, are not identical. This could be good news. If they were, purification of mind would be impossible. The mind makes up imaginings. It imagines things that harness the defilements to itself. That means it imagines things that like hold the defilements to itself and then becomes unsure as to exactly what is the mind and what is defilement. Do you get a sense of that? Like you can't, can't tell the difference. So he's, this is his, his metaphor. Water is in its natural state <coughs> a pure transparent fluid. But if dye is added to it, it will change color accordingly. You know, if red dye is added, it'll turn red. If blue dye is added, it will turn blue. But even though the water may change color in accordance with the dye, the substances introduced into it, it actually never forsakes its innate purity and colorlessness. So if a wise person is able to distill the colored water, the water resumes its natural state. The dye stuff can only cause variation in outer appearance, not in intrinsic nature. So when we say, you know, awareness doesn't care what it's aware of, or someone said to me, what about if awareness cares equally to what it's aware of? I said, okay, that, that works too. It's like awareness cannot be stained or damaged or harmed in any way because the object of awareness is some really disgusting thought or mood or anything. And it's not made better by being aware of really subtle movements of piti. It's natural moment of, of this pure awareness is just what it is. This is the, the beginning of that sense of the luminosity, the radiance, not always huge because there's so much subtle confusions covering it. But just begin to get interested in intimations of this. You begin to really see it's not some far away possibility. If you're looking for the big bang, yes. But if we're willing to just touch into this simplicity of isness of just standing here and hearing the wind, before it goes to I'm standing here hearing the wind, just hearing, just seeing, just being with. Just taste the quality, not only of the object, but the quality of the awareness. There's a, oh, where did I put it? Ajahn Sumedho, this isn't exactly... Um, I would say, kosher Theravada teaching, but it's something he says that I love. Of course, now I can't find it. No, I can't find it. Anyway, 
I mean, he says, the practice of freedom is awareness. The practice of freedom, his consciousness is the doorway to liberation. Now consciousness, I'm not equating consciousness and awareness, he might have been. I would say consciousness is just that quality of knowing, just the natural quality of knowing, hearing, you know, it just happens by itself. Awareness is recognizing that knowing is happening, okay? But he's saying awareness is the practice of freedom. And consciousness, the doorway to liberation, meaning when anything arises in consciousness and is known and it ceases, and then there's freedom again. This is what's occurring moment after moment after moment all day long. And the Tibetans often have a phrase that all, all difficult thoughts, emotions, everything that arises self-liberates in the nature of mind. To me, that's exactly the same thing Ajahn Sumedho was saying. Something that arises in consciousness is known by awareness. It's left just as it is. The conditions change, it vanishes, it dissipates. And again, there's peace. It's what you could call self-liberating. We didn't have to get in there with the hammer and tongs and fix it. But resting at ease in whatever arises, but with this purity of awareness, trusting the awareness, seeing what occurs, it self-liberates. Nyosho Kempo Rinpoche is talking about this. Again, no, this is Tibetan language, but it's the same thing. Saying, this is one's birthright, one's nature. It is not something missing to be sought for and obtained elsewhere, but it is the very heart of our original existential being. And, and this, I think, is important. It is actually inseparable from our uncontrived everyday awareness. So Zim says, just sometimes in the heart of our everyday moment-to-moment awareness is this potential to be just pure, free in that moment, there's no problem. Beyond willful alteration, free from conceptuality, unfabricated, ordinary awareness. That's just what we're practicing here unadulterated by effort and modification, naked, fresh, vivid, and totally natural, totally natural. Stop trying so hard, because the awareness is just natural, you know? We've given so many examples of that. What could be simpler than this? To rest at home and at ease in total naturalness. So they say, what could be simpler than this? So then he says, so get out of the construction business. Just rest at ease in whatever arises and stop constructing all this stuff. But the point I'm making here is that it's, it's our natural, ordinary, everyday awareness is the doorway in. And it's these simple moments when nothing special is going on that we can actually recognize and access it. But so I don't know if it's just... The, the way things are speeding up and so intense in our culture. I guess not, because this goes back to the Buddha. But, you know, we're looking too much for something really shocking, something really incredible, something to, to really notice. And so in these little moments, it's not enough of anything to really trust that recognizing that purity of awareness, just our natural awareness, not super mundane, super concentrated. Our natural awareness is a doorway in. This is really the place we begin to explore the third noble truth. 
over and over and over. This is from the Dalai Lama saying the same thing in a way, that when the mind is free of negative emotions and tendencies, it understands and knows all phenomena. It is only because there are obscuring veils between the mind and its object that we are unable to know all things. This is the point. Once these veils have been removed, no new power is needed. Seeing and being aware is the nature of the mind itself. It's the nature of the mind itself, seeing and being aware. It is amazing that it, it ought to be so simple. Just seeing and being aware, that's going on all day. And we get so, so caught up and complicated. And it's just, you know, remember I said I, some talk ago, Tibetan said, why didn't you tell me it was this closer than my eyelid? I'm always looking way out for something much more. This is so, so ordinary, so completely accessible, arising in our experience every moment that we just overlook it completely. Our ordinary, everyday awareness. It's not simple, not removed from life. The practice of freedom is awareness. And I want to say is the more we appreciate just this coolness, just think of it, this coolness, just simple awareness, the heart and mind maybe not plunging quite so much into objects, we start to actually recognize ourself and the world in another way. As His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, you know, when the, when the mind isn't obscured, when awareness isn't obscured, we see and know things clearly. That's the nature of the mind itself. When I've been talking about recognizing accurately, the real, the deep freedom that comes, more than just the little moments, doesn't come from, again, from going somewhere else, but from recognizing more and more deeply and accurately just the way things have always been and are now. It's not something else we have to achieve. The Buddha again. Remember Greg, quite a few talks ago, read this line from the Buddha when someone said, distill everything you know into one sentence and if there's nothing is worth clinging to. Remember that? It's a test. Nothing is worth clinging to. So this is, and having known that, you know everything. This is further in that same discourse. Having directly known everything, she fully understands everything. And having fully understood everything, she sees all signs differently. She sees the eye differently, forms differently, and so with all the sense bases. Whatever feeling arises connected with seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, with mind contact as condition, that too she sees differently. When a bhikkhu knows and sees thus, ignorance is abandoned and true knowledge arises. Seeing signs differently means seeing, seeing without the distortions. The seeing, you could say, the impermanent quality, the non-self, the not-self quality, the unreliable, unsatisfactory quality, not something we have to like click through and see, but it's so clear 
that all arising experience has this ephemeral nature, whatever's condition comes apart. Ephemeral, not lasting, but also not self-existing. What is sometimes called um, emptiness, but as is said, uh, Ajahn Amaro makes the point in his book, The Island, the Buddha talk about emptiness because that sounds like a thing, a state, but he talks about all experience as being empty of inherent self-existence. But this seeing signs differently, this kind of uh, opening into this empty quality of nothing being inherently solid and self-existing is actually uh, one of the like deeper aspect of freedom that again even releases even more the tendency to get sucked into and reactive to what's going on, to objects. Ajahn Jumnian, who's another Thai forest master, he's still alive. He's just, just talking about meditation. At some point, the mind becomes so clear and balanced that whatever arises is seen and left untouched with no interference. One ceases to focus on any particular content and all is recognized as simply mind and matter, an empty process arising and passing away of its own, a perfect balance of mind with no reactions, and there's no longer any personal doing. It's a moment of a balanced mind. But then people often think that that sense of emptiness, empty of self, moves into who cares, you know, the indifference aspect of equanimity. But what Ajahn Jimni is describing there is equanimity. It's not a divorcing or a separation from our life, from activity, from anything. Emptiness is right in the heart of it all. It's a payment children. She's talking about this, this empty quality of the sense of self, of permanence, of any experience is recognized simply when the mind is not clinging. That's all, when the mind is not clinging, not making something of anything, not resting or holding to any experience. She says, keep on going. Everything is a verb. And then she tells this story. Some people have heard this, but I just like it because it's funny. Uh, Chogim Trungpa and Dingo Kensi Rinpoche, who are two great masters, were, she said they were sitting under a tree somewhere in Bodh Gaya together and just so happy to be together, these two old masters. And she said they were just sitting there together and beaming and silent and just grinning for like hours without saying anything, just beaming. And then after about three hours, uh, <laughs> Chogim Trungpa broke the silence and with a huge smile he pointed and he said, they call that a tree. And they both just cracked up. It's <laughs> 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 a little bit different, but you know, they know we call it a tree. But you see all signs differently. We can recognize tree, we can use tree, and we know it has no inherent self existence. <laughs> Another Tibetan, Zigar Kongchul. The experience of emptiness is not found outside of the world of ordinary appearance, as many people mistakenly assume. In truth, 
we experience emptiness when the mind is free of grasping at appearance. And yet we fully know all appearance, we fully relate. And the natural response of this heart-mind of non-grasping is compassion. So I just want to end by reading two uh, things from beings that are experiencing this. The first is from a Tibetan wandering monk called Shabkar, who uh, lived uh, from 1781 to 1851. So they say he was very, very famous. There's a really thick book, the biography of Shabkar. He was sort of like Miller Repa in that he wandered all through Tibet, uh, just practicing his whole life and creating all these beautiful songs of compassion and awakening. And he's interesting because they say he was very poor and uneducated. And so he had all of his practice, none of it came from intellectual study or understanding at all, but just from his own practice. And he was also deeply compassionate. He was known, he didn't eat meat, which is very rare in Tibet because there's not much else to eat. And he would often try to buy animals that were going to be slaughtered to save them. And you know, he's that kind of really compassionate. So this, it's a little bit long. I'm sorry, but I just love this. It's called The Fruit. So he's, this is one of the songs of his experience of of emptiness and compassion. When one looks at one's own mind, the root of all phenomena, there is nothing but vivid emptiness, nothing concrete there to be taken as real. It is present as transparent, utter openness, without outside, without inside, and all pervasiveness without boundary and without direction. The wide open expanse of the view, the true condition of mind, is like the sky, like space, without center, without edge, without aim. By leaving whatever I experience relaxed in ease, just as it is, I have arrived at the vast plane that is the absolute expanse. Dissolving into the expanse of emptiness that has no limits and no boundary, all vision, all sound, my own mind, and the sky all merge. Not once did the notion arise of these being separate and distinct. Now this is the interesting. In the absolute expanse of awareness, all things are blended into that single taste, but relatively, each and every phenomenon is distinctly, clearly seen. This is the paradox that keeps going back and forth. Wondrous. Toward all the beings under the skies who have failed to realize this, all pervading compassion spontaneously dawned. The urge to sing this song arose of itself. Without entering the narrow rock gorge, which is mind watching for stillness and movement. Without being caught in the snare of view and meditation created by the intellect. Without flying into the dark clouds of dull states of mind. Without plunging into the storm of agitated thinking. The great Garuda, my own mind, flew freely into the wide open sky of the absolute expanse. 
In this expanse of sky-like evenness, all phenomena, all appearances and sounds of samsara and nirvana are apparent yet empty. They are empty and yet they appear. Although they appear, phenomena are empty, free of the limiting concept truly existent. Although they are empty by nature, phenomena do appear, free of the limiting concept non-existent. In the vast space of the view that is itself spontaneously free from the two limiting concepts, belief in permanence or belief in nothingness, this joyous song burst forth by itself. Even more vast than the sky is the view emptiness. There the sun of love and the moon of compassion arose. And again and again I made boundless prayers to benefit the teachings and beings. May all disease and epidemics, all famine and all wars be ended, and may all have happiness and joy. And this last is from a letter from Mingyur Rinpoche about a year and a half ago. He's the younger brother of Sony Rinpoche. So probably many of you know he, he went off for three years to do retreat, and he just vanished, didn't, just walked out from Bodh Gaya, didn't tell anyone where he went, didn't take anything with him. Like Sony said, he didn't even take a toothbrush. And he just went off. And so it really, he's doing today pretty much the same wandering practice that Shabkar or Milarepa was doing. And so after about a year and a half, one of his most devoted disciples Lamatashi happened to run into him in uh, Nepal and begged him to let him come with him. So he went with him for a while, and then Mingyur gave him this letter and sent him away again. So I'm just going to read a few little, not the whole thing. Um, he says, I myself am wandering without any fixed location, staying in isolated mountain hermitages and other such places. I have experienced feelings of happiness and suffering, rising and falling like waves on the surface of the ocean. At time, food and clothing have been hard to come by, and I felt cold, hungry, and thirsty. And you know, he doesn't mean like a little bit cold, a little bit hungry, you know. He's like wandering around in Tibet without a coat, okay? At times, food and clothing have been hard to come by, and I have felt cold, hungry, and thirsty. Even when I have begged for alms, I receive nothing but insults and harsh words. At other times, I have received food and clothing effortlessly, without even asking for them. And in my mind, it felt as though I were enjoying the pleasures of the gods. While I have experienced both happiness and suffering, the most important thing is that a deep and heartfelt sense of certainty has arisen in the depths of my being, such that no matter what happens, I know that the true nature of these experiences, their very essence, is that of timeless awareness and vast compassion. This natural clarity of awareness has been with us from the very beginning. It is the essence and nature of our minds. So therefore, one must maintain this flow of pure awareness to the best of one's ability. Exactly what we're doing. 
while all beings have great wisdom and compassion, this is not always apparent. This is simply because they have not recognized what they already have. Thus, aside from merely recognizing our own true nature, there isn't the slightest thing to meditate on. Recognizing the importance of this, I have passed my days feeling joyful and content, wandering through the mountains and valleys and staying here and there. From my heart, I sincerely encourage all of you to practice diligently in this manner as well. I just love it. It's like today. That's happening today. Okay, so this is the last paragraph from the Buddha's description of the first, the third noble truth. Hence, the purpose of the holy life does not consist in acquiring alms, honor, or fame, nor in gaining morality, concentration, or the eye of knowledge. That unshakable deliverance of the heart, that indeed is the object of the holy life. That is its essence. Unshakable deliverance of the heart like what Mingyur was talking about. So let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.